Can I invite you, before we start, that you uh, keep your Bibles open at that passage as we'll be looking at it in some detail. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises you made to your people and the promises you make to us. We pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us now. Speak through my words, I pray. Amen. Well, as Jonathan's already said, we're in a series in Exodus, and uh, he said, and he preached last week, that the situation was bad for the people of Israel, and it was getting worse. So what were the human responses to this, and what was God's responses and promises? And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Because when things are bad and getting worse, we need reassurance, don't we? That God is in control and that God knows and cares about the situation that we are in. Well, let's start by looking a little bit, backtracking into the context of Exodus chapter 5 and 6. Moses and Aaron had accepted God's command to go down to Egypt and to tell Pharaoh, who was the king, if you like, of Egypt to let the people of Israel go. But Pharaoh responded in chapter 5, verse 2, by saying, Who is the Lord, that I should heed his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let the Israelites go. Pharaoh questions the very existence of the God of Israel and his authority over him. And of course, this can be a common response within the society that we live in today. And instead of letting the Israelites go, Pharaoh had made their bondage more severe. He'd he'd forced them to make as many bricks as before, but given them no straw to do so. And so the foremen of the Israelite work crews and gangs came to Moses and Aaron and accused them of putting a sword into Pharaoh's hand to kill them. Verse 21 of chapter 5. Moses responds by crying out to God in verse 22, which was where we started uh, our reading this morning. In my translation it read, O Lord, why hast thou done evil to this people? Why didst thou ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in thy name, he has done evil to this people, and thou hast not delivered thy people at all. Things were bad and getting worse. And so in verse 23, we see Moses begins to question God. He questions God's goodness. Why have you caused this trouble to all these people? He questions God's purpose. Why did you ever send me? He questions God's actions. You haven't delivered the people at all. And I believe that Moses is acting like us people act often. Because Moses was a sinner. He was a man of incomplete faith. A man in desperate need of God's mercy and grace like us. And at this time, he's at a crisis of belief, which is where we can be in times of trouble and doubt. But there is a positive to this, because Moses at least is crying out to God, which is a positive action. He recognises that God is here in this situation. And of course, this isn't a one-off. No, we read of this many times in the Bible, particularly 
uh, we see it in the Psalms. In Psalm 77, verses 1 and 2, it says this, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and my soul refused to be comforted. And we too can also cry out to God, can't we? We remember Jesus on the cross when he cried out to God, Why have you forsaken me? And so I'd like to suggest this morning that it's okay to cry out to God as long as we are humble, honest and faithful, asking questions of him. But it's important that we remember, though, that God does not necessarily have to answer them. We read of this in some detail in the book of Job, if you remember. But we need to be reminded that though there may be no answer, God does hear our cries. Moses and the people of God were discouraged by their situation. Now, there is, a, 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 there is a, a legend concerning the devil. The legend goes like this. The devil once advertised his tools for sale at a public auction. Malice, hatred, envy, jealousy, sensuality, deceit. And when the prospective buyers assembled, there was one oddly shaped tool which was labelled not for sale. Asked to explain why this was, the devil answered, I can spare my other tools, but I cannot spare this one. It's the most useful implement that I have. It is called discouragement. And with it I can work my way into the hearts otherwise inaccessible. When I get this tool into a man's heart, the way is open to plant anything there I may desire. And so this legend embodies a sober truth. Discouragement is a dangerous state of mind because it leaves one open to the assault of the enemy of the soul. And the people in Moses are discouraged. And we may well be when times get hard. So what is God's response to this discouragement then? Well, this is what chapter 6, of course, is all about. It's responded by who he is and the promises he makes to his people. Look in verse 1 of chapter 6. Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out. Yea, with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And there's a lesson, isn't there, for us here to note in passing. When God is about to bring a good experience into our lives, he lets it sometimes be preceded by a very discouraging setback. The burden of bondage in Egypt became heaviest just before the great day of liberation. So if we are discouraged this morning, hold on to God until he stretches out his strong hand to you. But what about the actions of Moses and God? Well, firstly, we see that Moses returns to God, even though things were very difficult. When things get difficult, let us not walk away from God or ignore God. Don't give up on our times with God when it's very difficult, even if we don't know how to pray. Listen to God. Spend time in his word, because this passage points us toward the fact that God speaks to his servant when times are difficult. Moses returns, but Moses is also truthful, honest, and doesn't shy away from the issue and the problem. 
And Moses, like us, complains that God to God. He complains that God has sent him to Pharaoh. But despite the fact that Moses has partially done what God had commanded, things seem to have got worse for his people. And he, as God's messenger, is beginning to feel the heat. He is being criticised by his own people. And I wonder, can we recognise this situation in our lives and the life of our church? When we're trying to witness to others, trying to do God's will in the community, things get worse. I wonder, will this be the situation of our new rector in the next few years here at Trinity? God has called the rector to lead this church into ways of fulfilling God's commands. That is, to promote justice in the community, to help the poor and marginalised, to heal the sick and preach the gospel to the whole community in which we are found. Because this work will entail us as a church in taking risks, both practically, financially and spiritually. Perhaps people as a result of this have left the church because they don't agree with the rector's methods or expectations. And so we come in prayer before God, complaining. Well, we see here in chapter 5, verse 22, how Moses, despite his problems, returns to God and complains. See the way that Moses doesn't hold back. He questions God's goodness. Why have you caused trouble for this people? God's purpose. Why did you send me? God's actions, you haven't delivered your people. But he recognises that God is in control. God is in charge. But it is because it's God who has brought the trouble. In other words, Pharaoh, the most powerful man in that area, is still under the authority of God. And God in his planning has used Moses as his messenger. And so Moses has become part of the process. And so he complains. In fact, these actions have meant that it is less likely that God's promises will be fulfilled, the rescue of his people. But what does God do in response to Moses' complaints? Well, God gives Moses a reinterpretation or an emphasis on his name and he makes him three promises. Now, for us, of course, names tend not to be so important. But they are very important when they give us features about what that person is. And God displays his name to Moses. Look at chapter 6, verses 2 to 8. God says, I am the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh. The name given to Moses by God when he appeared to him at the burning bush, which we read of in Exodus 3, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am, Yahweh. And this was different to the name given by God to the patriarchs before Abraham, Jacob and Isaac as God Almighty. And some commentators have stated that this shows that the patriarchs didn't know the extent of God's character compared to Moses who was given the experience of God at the burning bush. So what is this name all about? What does it mean, Yahweh? Well, it means that God is self-existing and not dependent upon anything else for his existence. It means that God is the creator and sustainer of all that exists. God is the same yesterday, today and forever. And God is eternal in his existence. And so that is a reassurance to Moses. This is the God that is speaking to him. 
And the main focus of these verses is on the Lord's promises to be with Moses and his people. And so God promises deliverance through God's actions. God sets the scene again by reminding Moses of who God is and what he's done in the past. Look at verse 2. I am the Lord. What had God done in the past? He had appeared to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And I think it's good, isn't it, to remind ourselves of what God has done in the past. It's good to have personal testimonies of God at work because it strengthens our faith in the God who can appear to be silent and invisible to us when times get difficult. So what did God do for their predecessors? Well, we read in verse 4, God provided a covenant relationship, a promise to this people to give them the land of Canaan. It's practical, but it's also in the past. And it's the basis of their special relationship with God. And in our situation, we can relate this to God's fulfilment of this at the cross, where Jesus provides for us the way into the new land, the new creation. But of course, God isn't only a God of past promises, because in verse 5 we read that God sees into the present. He sees the slavery of the people and the unjust actions of the Egyptians. And so he tells Moses of his covenant and that he will act within time. And so in verse 6 we read that God will free them and bring them out from the bondage of Egypt. God will judge the Egyptians. God will redeem his people. Now that word redeem means to rescue them from danger and foster the conditions in which their faithfulness may flourish. But God does use the word judge. God will judge the Egyptians for the way that they have, treat, that they have treated the people. And I would like to say to you this morning that God still judges. God judges societies for the way they treat the poor and the marginalised. God is the power through which this will happen. But not only do we have an act of judgment here, but we have an act of promise. Look at verse 7. I will take you to be my people. It's God at work. God will do this. I will be your God and you will know this. The people will see and know that God is acting on their behalf. God is actually breaking into their society, into the present and working on behalf of the people. That's his promise. He has the power to change a very practical situation of slavery. And he's got even the power to change where they are, going, where they are living. And so God says, I will fulfill the promise I made to your forebears. And I would like to suggest it's good, isn't it, for us to be reminded of the promises that God has made. Especially those that were made by Jesus. Now, some of you may have already done this, but as a practical exercise, I would like to suggest that it's good for us to go through the New Testament and underline all the promises that Jesus makes for his followers. Because if we do that, it can encourage us, it can challenge us, and it can help our discipleship and direct our personal lives and the life of our corporate life here at church. So as we look at the teaching within the Gospels and the letters within the New Testament, we can have the confidence that Jesus is our God. Jesus came to fulfill the extra story of redemption. We remember this, of course, as a church when we come to celebrate the Last Supper, the communion service. 
But what else is there about this promise that God makes to his people? Well, the promise of God was was to be forever. They were to be given the land as a possession to them, and most importantly, to their offspring. It was looking on into the future. The saving action of God in their deliverance from Egypt's oppression was to be for all time. And later in Exodus, we will see how they were to be reminded of this in the Passover meal and festival that we find in Exodus chapter 12. And so I believe for us this morning, it's good for us to be reminded that the promises of salvation and becoming a member of God's family through the death of Jesus on the cross is forever once we've come to him and believed in his name. Of course, this doesn't mean that life will be plain sailing or that we won't continue to live in ways that don't please God, what's often called sinning. But the promise is still there, isn't it? The promise is there that Jesus died to take the punishment for our sin that separates us from the love of God. And Jesus helped to remind us of this by setting up that Last Supper. And he instructed his followers to do that in remembrance of him. What a fantastic promise that we've got this morning. Isn't it a promise that we can take on board this morning? So there we have a promise that we can take hold of. And it's a promise for God's people. It's a promise for people who were in a very difficult situation in that day. And, they can, and that can help them in their difficulties. God knows our situations as well. God promises us eternity with him if we believe and repent in the name of Jesus. But what were the responses of Moses and, people, and, and the people to God's promises? What do we see here in this passage to this fantastic uh, promise? Well, we see that Moses' response is he listens to God's instructions and obeys. We see this in verse 9, don't we? That Moses goes back to the people and he uses the words of God. He doesn't make up his own words to tell the people. No, he uses the words of God. And Moses tells them of all this fantastic promise made made by God. Yes, God has seen their terrible condition. He was going to respond to it and he was still their God who loved them and was going to provide for all of their physical needs. Now, can you imagine the situation? It must have been a fantastic thing. Hooray. But what is the people's response? Well, it's not hooray for the people, is it? Look how they respond. The people did not listen, it says. And I think we can understand this situation, can't we? Because we can make promises to the people, but for them to be effective, they need to hear them and respond. Often a common complaint from our wives and girlfriends is that we men are not listening, not hearing what they're really saying. And if we don't really hear what they're saying, then there's little hope of the correct response. I'm sure that many of us can uh, recognise that situation. Well, the people of Israel didn't listen to hear the message that Moses was bringing from from God. Why not? Why didn't they hear the message? 
Well, we're told in verse 9, because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. The people were so gripped by the situation of their lives, the slavery, the beatings, the extreme hard work in trying to achieve their quota of bricks and, and building work, that they allowed it to take their eyes off God and his promises. Perhaps, understandably, their concentration was upon the real difficulties they faced each day. They allowed themselves to be discouraged by taking their eyes off what God had promised to their forebears and to their generation. And I believe this is a danger for us as well, isn't it? Charles Spurgeon, that famous preacher and theologian, said this, Some cannot receive Christ because they are so full of anguish, so crushed in spirit, that they can't find strength enough of mind to entertain a hope that by any possibility salvation can come to them. And as believers, we should act like that famous man Bonhoeffer during the Second World War, who just 24 hours before his execution gathered some of the prisoners together and held a worship service. He chose one of his texts, 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 12, which speaks of the believers living hope, meditating on the gospel in our darkest hours. When we focus it upon ourselves, when our focus is upon ourselves, the situation that we find ourselves in, it's easy to lose sight of God's promises. Therefore, I believe the lesson for us this morning from this passage is this keeping our sights upon God and his promises. And we can do this daily, of course, by worshipping him, by singing hymns and songs of praise, by taking time to read and study his word, by thanking God for all his good gifts to us, by spending time each day in prayer and with fellow believers. When we fix our eyes upon Jesus, as the old song says, there's less likely to be dominated by discouragement. However, we do need to recognise that there will be problems in life which may well last for some time, as it did for those people. But our hope is in the promise that Jesus saves us from our sins, that he will be with us now, and that deliverance will come in eternity when we meet with Jesus again when Jesus will come to reclaim his own. What a fantastic promise that is for us to take away this morning. And that, of course, is the fulfilment of the Exodus story that we are looking at in this series. Amen.